0: This is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Podcast. Every Sunday morning, we'll take a look at a new research-based tip or technique to help you practice more effectively or perform better under pressure. And on the first Sunday of every month, I'll have a guest from the music, sport, or research world who will share their insights on how we can all be a little more awesome in the practice room and on stage. Today, I'll be chatting with cellist Natasha Brovsky and violist Roger Tapping, who have both had distinguished performing and teaching careers and are currently on the faculty at the Juilliard School. I initially reached out to them because I was curious to learn more about how they each approach learning new music, specifically to see how similar or different their approaches might be, given that they first met when playing chamber music together and have been a part of each other's lives for over 25 years. Though the conversation began here, it continued on into many other interesting areas and Natasha and Roger shared their thoughts and insights on topics like managing nerves, cultivating patience in the practice room, ensuring we don't bake fear into our practice, and being a parent to musical children. My wife is a pianist, and we met early on in college. So so back in those days, we'd be practicing or rehearsing, and often we'd get kind of bored or tired of practicing and rehearsing. And so we'd start debating various silly things like whether it was better to be a violinist or better to be a pianist, which instrument was more difficult and um, eventually sometimes more meaningful things like what was the best way to learn new music. So her tendency was always to start by studying the score and noodling around a little bit to get some of it in her fingers. And then eventually she'd start listening to more recordings and so forth. But for me, and I don't know if this was my Suzuki habits or not, but my first step was always to start with recordings and to get it in my head first and then start to get it in my fingers and then go to the score only after I'd gotten a sense of how it sounded and how it felt – and, and obviously there's no one single correct way and there are pros and cons to score first and recording first, and it depends on how much time you have and et cetera, et cetera. But as a student, I don't know that I ever gave much intentional thought to how I ought to approach learning new music. I just sort of did it. And so I wanted to ask you guys about your process at this point, having had to learn a lot of music and perform it and teach and so forth. And I have to confess, before I let you answer that a part of me is hoping that the two of you have very different looking processes, which is kind of why I wanted the two of you together. But, you know, even if you do have mm-hmm. almost exactly the same process, that would be pretty illustrative too. So I'm okay either way. But yeah, when presented with music that you've never played and maybe have never even heard before, mm-hmm. how do each of you approach learning? it?
1: Well, I mean, I think that's an an interesting question because you, I think we are a little bit similar to what you mentioned, Noah, that I'm a little more of a score person than Roger, right? And we've we've uh-huh. had discussions about that, where you sort of you know uh-huh. intuitively pick it up, and uh, I like to see it on the page and, and uh-huh. like to understand it visually in a certain way. Not exclusively, I will listen a little bit. I, I listen like once, maybe just to get a if I can't understand it or get it into my ear from the score just once, and then I'll st- stop listening and really look at the score. When you say we're different in that
2: way, in some ways, but it's it's hard to generalise because I think we both came from families in which there was so much music in our backgrounds, on just on all the time. Mm-hmm. Our parents listening to music all the time, and we did too. And so, you the question was, if you really don't know what something sounds like, what would you do? And actually, in the the music we normally find ourselves coming to play, there's so little actually that we've never heard in some ways. At least that's been my experience through life. So there are some quartets that I hadn't listened to before I played them. And if it's, here's the thing, if it's in a sort of language that you already know, in other words, it's not too complicated, it's not by a composer whose music you don't know, or it's not too modern, then my instinct, I think, is that you sort of, you do have this sort of sense of being able to understand it through playing it in a certain sense. Uh, it's nice to have the sense you're not going to make too many decisions before we you... This is in the field of collaborative playing This is, And most of what we do is collaborative. but I mean, let's say in a quartet or trio situation, there's a sense in which... I've got one view, I'm going to put one side of this, which is I think composers themselves, especially way back, when people started to write chain music, they would have... They would have expected your first encounter with the music, in fact, to be sitting looking at the music and playing it with others. I mean, you wouldn't have had scores. I think towards the end of Beethoven's career, they started to make scores. But up to that point, so you sort of had your ears out for what the other people were doing, and you'd reach out. But as I say, this is for music in a style and language that you already understand. And it's a different answer than if you're playing something that's just you know, quite recently been written. I mean, there may be recordings, in which case it's so useful to be able to listen to something ahead of time. And indeed to look at a score and work out before your rehearsal and be professional about it, sort of who am I playing with, where are the melodies, things which it's much harder to come to if you don't know the language of the composer. Yeah. Would you, how would you I put mean, that?
1: Well, that's. I mean, I agree, agree with, with, that? with that, but I think, I think for me it's always, I sort of love looking at a score, because I think sometimes I, I may have learned, even if it's music that, you know, Beethoven or something, yeah. I might've learned it in my ear from certain recordings that I listened to over and over again as as a student and a, and a child. And then I look at the score and say, well, actually, that's not the balance that really, that yeah. really should be there. Or, you know, you discover new things. Um, my father was also a musicologist. So I think there's a little bit of an analytical Sort of historical bent towards my, my, the influence that I had, and so like for us when we were listening to recordings on the radio, it was always a test. Like, can you say who the composer was or when this piece was written? I mean, he was always <laughs> there was always a bit of a quiz going on whenever music was on. But the
2: lovely thing was, my father's a complete amateur, and he also did that. But yeah. he was never he never looked at his course.
1: My father looked at scores. But he it was always scores.
2: Yeah, but we loved it. I mean, he was—you know—he just was saying, "Who do you think this is by?" And it's amazing how often you could sort of get there, and he had a gradient for that, also just as an amateur. Yeah. But I'm—I'm I'm just taking—it's quite interesting this sort of very first encounter with music. There's a sense in which you probably think the composer might have imagined that's how you would be coming across for the first time and being astonished by the actual sound of it, and the combinations of it. And on the other hand, I'm not arguing against looking at scores. I mean, you, there's so much more in a score than you can pick up. So you have to have all your senses. And I, the sort of subtle things, like, you know, something's marked to be a little bit louder than something else or has different articulations. And these are things that a composer's definitely thought about. Everything you put down is thought about.
1: And Yeah, and I, I, one thing I've really enjoyed is thinking about how different composers use notation and mm. how they react you know, so I think of, say, I mean, the, the example I often use, like Tchaikovsky is, seems to be, like, very emotional about how he uses dynamics, for example. You know, he has to write five F's and four P's, you know, and, and it sort of seems almost like, like it's coming from his heart directly into the way he writes the dynamics. And then, yes. you know... Beethoven or Brahms might be more structural in certain ways or calling attention to a harmonic moment or a structural moment in the form. I find that interesting. I think it's important to, to kind of know how composers, what their language with notation is. Mm. And so that that's really important when you're looking at a score, that it's just not the same for every, every person. Everyone tries to get what's in their head down on paper and it's only an approximation, really.
2: That's true, because you find some people, I mean, come across some students who sort of are looking so literally at a score that suddenly they're playing beautifully and suddenly they play some terribly short notes. Right. It doesn't make sense. too sense. And so in a way you have to get to the point where you sort of feel like you basically understand yeah, what the music should sound like, what its language is, and then you try and understand what the person might have meant by the dots. Right. Uh, and it might be that they want just a little more spoken or very dry, but there's had to be a reason. You have to sort of have the motivation.
1: And also that they might, the composer might've been reacting to a performance that they were hearing, like that the the performer played it too short. So he wrote, you know, lines on the notes and that doesn't necessarily mean that those notes are long. So there's a lot of information that you, you have to kind of, you can't look at it in a, in a one dimensional way. You really have to understand what's going on. And I mean, for example, Beethoven being a great improviser, there's a sense in which you have to think about the process as well and, and how, there's a sort of spontaneity in his composition at the same time as he really analysed it as well. So there's that tension in the way he notated. So I think you have to have a lot of information in that way or not, or sort of, yeah, when you agree that you... And talking about the at scores, way.
2: what's fantastic in Beethoven is, if you can get to the point, and it's easier these days, to actually see somebody's manuscript. Because right. seeing a Beethoven manuscript is... You actually see some crescendos are really big and thick. Right. And he's maybe... And you can see why he's altered them to go somewhere else where he originally thought of. And that, as you're yeah. saying about Tchaikovsky, almost is this like a sort of really emotional thing going on That's there. right. Very vivid.
1: Right. Like that sort of in the Beethoven cellos there's a tenoramente written like really big on the score. And of course, in the printed, printed yes. version is tiny, you know, so you might not notice it, but you look at the autograph and it's huge on the page. I mean, Nick Kitchen is doing amazing stuff with yep. that, like looking at Beethoven's scores. And, um, the first violinist of them. the
2: Borromeo Quartet. Yes, yeah. he really is.
0: There's so much stuff that you said that I want to follow up on that I'm having trouble in my head trying to keep track of it all. <laughs> I mean, yes, because when it comes out of Finale or whatever software is being used to create the printed scores, yeah. it has to be standardized, I imagine, right? They're not going to have like thicker fonts for certain <laughs> dynamics or yeah. certain crescendos, like you were saying, that you would be able to see kind of intuitively in Bye. in an autograph copy. That's, yeah, that's pretty fascinating it'd be nice if they included like a, uh, like a copy of the autograph along with the score. Maybe, yes. maybe they do already. I just haven't looked at a piece of music for 20 years. Well,
1: I, yeah. I wonder how that's affecting composers now. Cause actually yes. we won't be getting their hand handwriting and stuff. I mean, it's going to be more standardized in a way. I wonder. If,
2: <laughs> well, their <laughs> sketches and see sort of what they tried and then. Yeah. Instead of yes.
1: Yeah. A lot of that's going to be missing.
0: The thing that I wanted to ask before I completely forget it though, was how do you learn the language of different composers before we just hopped on Roger? I was watching um, the chat on Facebook that you had with Astrid and Jamie Clark, I believe about what did dots mean in Schumann versus Bartok. And then you were starting to say some of the same sorts of things that you and Natasha are talking about now. And is it just listening to, or I mean, not listening even, but looking at other music that the composer has written perhaps even for other instruments Is it listening for kind of historical traditions that have been passed on?
2: Listening. I mean, if you brought up, well, that's not the right thing. If you have managed to get to the point where you have listened to a lot of performances of lots of different pieces by the same composer, I think the thing that will strike you, and it won't be immediate necessarily, but let's say, let's take Brahms, which we both have fell in love with earlier in our lives, as we were lucky to, Without even intellectualizing, what sort of you're hearing is long a lot of long, beautiful melodic lines harmonized richly and sweetly um, and as you listen to different pieces of, that's one of the things you hear in Brahms very i mean there's a tremendously strong sense of just sensuous, rich, gorgeous harmony, beauty, beautiful, beautiful for its own sake and there are many, sometimes he's delicate, sometimes he's strong, but there's that sort of thing that, and even his, his use of instruments, and the way he will give you a sort of beautiful singing violin lines, and the way he uses the wind. And without intellectualizing, you will sort of begin to recognize those sort of hallmarks, and if you listen to Brahms, and then you listen to a Haydn quartet, you, you don't really even need to intellectualize at all to hear that you're dealing with different textures, different harmonic languages, different melodic languages.
1: But yeah, I mean, I would How add would on to that. that well, i I would just say that one thing that I found really fascinating and maybe it's my father's influence in this sort of historical side of things is that i I love to read contemporary accounts of the composers themselves. And so when I like the famous Brahms example is this pianist who studied with. Clara Schumann, Fanny Davies, who hmm. wrote an account of listening to Brahms rehearse the C minor piano trio and how he took time in certain places when there were swells and how his approach, you know, and so I find those kind of things very enlightening, actually. Yes. So I enjoy reading.
2: Yeah, that gives you a sort of license, doesn't it? It sort of yeah. tells you what what the values were in those times. Yeah, exactly. And that and that especially a sort of performance practice, but there's something about. The, but then there's the underlying what's the word, the nature, the content of music.
1: Right.
2: Which the more you listen, the more you could sort of just distinguish between. Brahms does just sound different, has different textures, different harmonies than Beethoven, even though he loved him so much.
1: But I think in terms of students, often when we are coaching these pieces, I almost feel sometimes like you have to give them permission to be flexible. Like they've almost become so literal and, Mm -hmm. and sort of giving them say, look, you know, this needs to sound spontaneous. This needs to sound mm. flexible and free. And so I find that I'm often sort of giving permission to, to explore in that way.
2: It's an interesting thing that in a way, the, the way you respond as a musician to music has so much to do with the actual harmonic content in it. And, and so what sometimes happens, you can take a sort of complicated piece of music with lots of instructions how to play it. In a rehearsal situation, you can take away those instructions how to play it and simply play it slowly and lusciously, even if it were a fast and vigorous thing. And in doing so, you discover, just by looking for it, that it's full of sort of interesting harmonies and melodies and combinations. And that also, because you're a central musician, sort of leads you to play with certain sort of colors in your sound and listen for who's the, the main voice and things like that. And so there's quite a long way you can get just understanding the content of the music, even before you're told how to play it. Does that make sense to you? So you're sort of following its shapes and developments, harmonically.
0: And I might be misunderstanding what you had said earlier. I just want to make sure to clarify. If I understood correctly, I got the impression that, yes, you look at the score, but there are sometimes things that aren't apparent just by looking at the score that you discover when you're playing with one another, that you then have to relook at the score to kind of make sense of what it might actually mean. Is that kind of what you guys were saying?
1: Yeah.
2: I think certainly at the detailed level, that's very true. I think if you take a sort of something that is a language that we can easily understand, I mean, unless it says, in harmony we understand and, and so on and so forth, then the things you're more likely to notice the score, which you don't notice just by playing, are the more subtle things, like the slight differences in articulations. That's partly true. It might also lead, if you're a little puzzled, what should I be listening for here? Because maybe you've been following a melodic line and then you're not sure where it goes. And that's a great place also to get out a score, and really trace it. And just that sort of visual aid is, is crucial to that.
1: But I also find that that I we had sort of in our sort of preparation thinking about your hmm. possible questions, Noah. And I know you work a lot with the stage, you know, fright and all of that. And and one of the things that I found has really helped me is, is that if you're on stage and you're actually, you know, so you can get on stage and you can be kind of in your own head and, and really like fearful. And at that moment you kind of close down and you stop listening. So if you just really focus on listening to the whole score and not just your own sound, but everything Mm. that's going out, your sound in combination with other sounds that I found to be very helpful when I'm nervous on stage, getting me, I need to get outside of myself and into Mm. a bigger place. So if I've done the kind of preparation where I've both been listening in very imaginative ways in my rehearsals and my preparation, and also visually looked at the score both, that gives me that much more to hold on to when I'm on stage if I'm nervous.
2: There's a very nice, quite new book by Ed Clorman about the sort of origins of chamber music from the classical era. Once. And in a way, what he's saying is something you could say is very obvious, which this goes to what you're saying a little bit, which is that People often say almost a cliche that chamber music is a conversation and it, you know, between four smart people, sometimes all speaking at once, but you can somehow still understand what they're saying. But there's a way in which it's actually composed, in which as you play it, you are actually intended to be surprised. So you're playing a melody, and if it were not for the fact that the viola player suddenly played a D flat, ah, you would sort of play it quite innocently. But the fact that something happens changes the way you play it and this is it's almost like it is a little drama and so the more you are hearing those things listening out and reacting to them or or something is sort of pretty nice but actually it's made extra sweet because somebody's playing in thirds with you that often happens on six or something and what does that do to your actual sound and think exactly thinking of these sort of things so much gets you out of your own head and it's how the music was conceived
0: yeah i th- i think this is what You're saying, Mm. it's kind of reflecting on my own experience. Mm. When I was focused on technical accuracy, Mm. I do remember nerves being a lot worse. But when I actually started understanding what to look for in music and in the score and what to think about in Mm. advance, what decisions to make, where I was more kind of excited about, uh, you know, there's a really cool kind of dynamic contrast moment coming here or there's a particular kind of vibrato that I've worked on that I think is really meaningful here, et cetera, et cetera, which was not so dependent on a particular, very narrow kind of technical accuracy, I do remember being surprised that I wasn't nervous in the same sort of way. Mm. Um, Is that, I'm assuming, what you're speaking to a little bit?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: There's a funny story that the great Canadian pianist Glenn Gould writes about, which may seem like a strange story, but I took a sort of lesson from it, which I think was the lesson he was intending. He said he was trying desperately to learn a bit too quickly a very difficult Beethoven sonata, and he was struggling to sort of find the technique. But he practiced and practiced and practiced. But when he played it best was when somebody came in and um, started making a big noise in his room. I think somebody vacuuming. was vacuuming or something. And then he found <laughs> he could play it. And it, it and it made him realize that, that there was some sort of distraction you could do from the actual physical thing. And he went, And so what I took from that, and I think that was his intention, I remember a sort of passage that used to scare me quite a lot in a particular quartet. And the cellist plays alongside... I have a harder thing and the cellist has, and I discovered that if I really listened to the cello part and imagine I was playing it because I practiced enough, you know, it was there. So you sort of, it's like how you go beyond even trusting yourself to actually distracting yourself because actually the body has learned how to do it. Is that a good way to put it? Yeah, yeah. for sure. So if you can sort of access that, it's good.
1: For me, I found also just that there's such a nice virtuous circle with teaching because mm, yeah. when you're teaching, you're sitting outside and you are yeah. you don't have the nerves of having to physically execute it and you, yeah. you're hearing what the essence of the piece and what's important and what's important to bring out. And so that sort of objectivity in a way I found very useful when I go back inside and play from the inside mm. for that reason. Mm.
0: That's actually one of the reasons why we tend to choke under pressure uh, to Roger's Story when we start either consciously monitoring motor movements that have already been
1: Mm. learned
0: at a pretty high level, or even worse, try to consciously control those muscles that we don't normally think about. Just like, you know, we don't think about walking or sitting or anything like that. But once we start being self conscious about it or trying to control things, that's when things start falling Mm. apart. And so, so yeah, being able to distract yourself in a musically productive way Mm. seems to be one of the keys to being a little bit more resistant to choking. So
2: to your question about how much to listen to music though, in learning something, I've sort of I must say I have contradictory thoughts about this because as I said, I mean we both were situations where we listened to so much music as kids that a lot of the music you're gonna learn you had sort of heard already. And on the other hand, I've also been mistrustful of the idea of deciding to listen to a recording before I start to play it. Because I don't want to be my relationship I want to be between me and the composer based on also just enough ambient knowledge of, of language and so on. But I've more recently, maybe not before first playing something, but I've more recently gone back to wanting to sort of hear how other people tackle the problems. And and just sometimes I'm listening to a score and thinking, well, not do I like it, but like, what would I do? It's a funny. You, you, you can listen in such a way that you're not being influenced unduly. You sometimes feel that that's the danger. The students, if because I sure we've both had experience, people come in and play something, and they've actually just been listening to one recording, they're trying to copy it. And actually, that could be pretty successful, but doesn't feel quite like the sincere way to go somehow. It's not your own response. So listening in such a way, you're thinking, well, what could I do with this? What do I like what I don't like? And that's the an important part of it.
1: yeah, I think of course, one thing that's funny thing that's happened with us is that we, because we're spending a lot of time well performing but also teaching a lot and analyzing performances and listening and thinking well what could I do better with this and what you know how could I and so sometimes (laughs) we'll put something on and I'm much worse about this than Roger like I'll put something on and I'll start like (laughs) analyzing like oh well you know it's a little too much vibrato there it could have been you know the phrase I don't really like that phrase and so then I actually can't turn off that teaching kind of brain I can so sometimes I have to just listen to something outside I can't listen to you know a or story can't listen to something that's too close to home because I it's very hard for me to turn that off. You are more able to turn that off. I'm not able, so sometimes yeah. like he gets mad at me because I'm just like ruined the piece, you know? Because like, I'm just oh amazing. yeah, it is a bit
2: of attitude, yeah, which I hadn't noticed before. Yeah.
1: yeah,
2: yeah, I'm a bit more of an amateur in that way.
0: <laughs> I do want to come back to the teaching thing in a second, but this is more kind of a practical question about the listening because I remember a master class where Leon Fleisher was talking to this group and said that you know sometimes it's it's like you were saying too easy to get overly influenced by the traditions of how something has been played over the Mm. years without really questioning whether that's what the score suggests (laughs) and you know so one person plays Tchaikovsky concerto this way and then a generation of people listen to that recording and then start playing it based off of that auditory kind of model and then other people start playing it off of that so it's like the game of telephone where suddenly it's not necessarily even close to what was originally in the music and So he said, yeah, sometimes you look at the score as if you've never heard it before and you might find that it's a very different piece than the one that you think you know. And uh, I'm curious about that in terms of how do you balance that, but also on a more practical side, like when you're talking about this listening, like do you listen to it sometimes without the score, sometimes with the score? Like, does it matter which? Is there a reason for one or the other?
2: Well, I think if you're really functionally deciding you're going to try and learn something by looking at the score, and you want to look and listen at the same time, I think.
1: Yeah, I agree with that.
2: Um, If that's the process you're in. There are lots of different ways. I think if you have the luxury of a lot of time and you're just going to be able to listen to lots of different recordings of something or over your life you have happened to, then you don't by any means have to be looking at a score for that to happen.
1: Yeah. But I think to answer your question, Noah, about how things get so distorted over time. And so I found it really interesting to, you know, when you say Dvorak cello and you go back and look at what actually he wrote, how things have gotten (laughs) distorted. If you look at it, not like a cellist, but really like a composer, like ask yourself why questions, why would he have written that texture there? Why did he put an offbeat there? What does he, you know, what does this mean for your part? I find that those are the kinds of questions that I ask myself and my students, which, you know, how are these other parts, as Roger was talking about earlier, affecting your part? And so you're looking at the score for those reasons, actually. Yeah. Thinking more like a composer than a a performer.
2: Yes, and also more like an actor. Because, I mean, I I think people use the word motivation when in rehearsal as an actor. Right. And so you have to know why you're saying these words and why you're saying the way you're saying them. I think you can assume that the composer assumes that you're understanding them and you're not just doing what's written on the page. I remember seeing some sort of estimate once that even a piece of Mozart, like about 90% of what you do isn't actually exactly written down. I mean, nobody's telling yeah. exactly how to phrase things. Yeah. Um, because we all sing with phrasing.
0: And also – Or even to yeah. balance
2: things. He doesn't say the first violin should be more than the viola. But if he's got the melody, you know, you're listening for these things because that's what you're listening for.
1: And I mean, I remember my colleagues that uh, I played with in the Peabody tree for so long would always bring up this example of, you know, nobody thinks of a melody with bar lines in it. Like you don't, you don't when imagine singing, these yeah. arbitrary lines, you know, <laughs> like you, you sort of have it in your head and then you think, okay, well, how can I write that down? So it's like, we're, I think that's why probably composers in the 20th century started to do away with bar lines and just write in different, mm. notate in different ways.
2: But it's sort of it's your job arbitrary. and you could call it interpretation because it's a sort of posh word, but it's sort of your job to really feel like you've come to an understanding of why the markings are there, why the dynamics are there. And you could have different reasons for it, but you need a reason. Just as an actor needs to know, why am I saying these words? I'm not just technically doing something, but I'm feeling sad when I do it or, And being surprised or whatever, every night, actually, night after night.
0: That reminds me a little bit of what a software engineer told me once. And I really ought to talk about this with composers because I don't know how they think. But Mm. the software engineer was talking about how a lot of what they do is, or at least this person did, was about figuring out what are all the ways in which the user could break what it is that I've created? And how do I make sure that they don't, right? So they don't, like in a bank... Web page, mm. what happens if you put in a negative number, <laughs> right? Like, oh is it going to suck money out of the person you're trying to transfer to? Like by accident, if they hit the negative sign before I'm going to send $50 to so-and-so, if they hit negative 50, will it take money? And apparently they found this once in this one particular bank, you know, it was, it hadn't been accounted for. And so if you put, I want to send so-and-so $50 and you put in negative 50, it actually took money out of the other person's account. And oh it so yeah, it's like kind of thinking of all the scenarios. And, and I think, I don't remember if it was Natasha, you or Roger who said this earlier, but you know, maybe the composer was listening to a, an ensemble play something and and they mm-hmm. played it in such a way where it's like, oh, I need to make an adjustment so they don't misinterpret the lack of a dot or yes. what the dot really means. And and I remember I think in grad school starting to look at music and say, Okay, so if if this accent was not here, how would I have played it? And then yeah. so, okay, so clearly that's not what the composer wanted because they put right. an accent. So how must I then adjust so that it maybe represents more what they wanted. I mean, is that sort of the, the kind of thing you're talking about by thinking like a composer when. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I also, actually there was another anecdote that I heard recently about Mozart and his concerto. I, I I can't remember where I read this, but that he apparently would sometimes not write dynamics in his, his concertos in the solo part. And he was reacting to actually whether the the audience was falling asleep or whether they were too rowdy. And so if they were too rowdy, he would come in really soft after the orchestral 2D and, and the opposite and vice versa. So his dynamics were actually responding to the audience in the moment, which was really surprising. So thinking like a composer can mean mm. all sorts of things.
2: But talking about the score, there are two things. Your, your question was how, do, how are you going to learn a piece for the first time, whether you should have listened to it or looked at the score? There's a second question is, Whichever the answer to that is, you do want to be very, very faithful to the score. And it might be that that's once you get into having heard it for the first time or played it for the first time. But I mean, there are so many, the great composers, great the ones we sort of continue to just love and be fascinated by, they're so quirky. And especially these days, it used to be the publishers were sort of, they'd sort of iron out the differences, like if somebody had done something yeah. differently. Recapitulation, they'd think, oh, we could not, couldn't have meant that. Even... Take away some of the spicier harmonies, even in Mozart, certainly for But nowadays, you sort of can get closer to preserving those sort of differences and close attention to your parts. Of what it actually says in what the score I totally advocate that. It's just it's just a much more. You just feel like you owe it to the composer who's got all these sort of imaginative ideas, and you compose very slowly, and every note and every bar is sort of so thought out in such a detailed way so adherence to the being faithful to what they've written seems important
0: right well it seems like it makes it more more fun as well to be attentive to these things as intentional as opposed to mm. it must be an accident that this has an inconsistency relative to previously and so forth now i've lost a sort of really nice transition that we had to the teaching thing that i think natasha you brought up but um i'm going to try to swivel back to that anyway. And I don't even remember exactly what it is that you were talking about, but it did remind me of something I think you wrote in Cello Bello about a heightened degree of self-consciousness when playing for students, because there's a degree of perhaps I need to really demonstrate or practice what I preach because I've been preaching about it so much that I need to make sure I'm doing it as well, which of course is not helpful in a performance situation. So I'm curious how how you and, and Roger as well kind of put that teaching brain aside for a moment and really just focus on on performing or playing.
1: It would be a lie to say it's not a struggle. I mean, you know, performing is a challenge and, and I still get nervous and I try to have to deal with it every time, yeah, you know. But I think once when I was preparing a, a, a faculty recital and I was just beside myself i was so nervous but i suddenly had this realization you know which just took so much of the weight off of just you know we are teaching an ideal what we're teaching is what we hope hope we're all searching for as musicians and if you know that you're trying to do that you may not always be successful but you're trying and you as the teacher and the students we're all in that together in that search And that just took so much pressure off and thought, okay, well, I don't have to be perfect. I can try to do this. And as long as I'm trying and using all of my knowledge and ability, then I can't ask more of myself than that, really.
2: That's helpful. And
1: and also to be honest with yourself about, do you know that you prepared as well as you could? I mean, that's one thing I ask my students, you know, to be honest with yourself when you're successful and when you're not successful in a performance, whether you think you yourself was was successful or whether the audience liked it or not, or the critics liked it or not, there's a moment where you as an artist have to ask yourself, was I true to what I tried to do? Did I work as hard as I could have? Did I really try to play to these ideals? And if if the answer is yes to that, then you can't ask more of yourself, you know? So that was really my kind of moment of realization that took some of the pressure off. It didn't make it like easy, I mean, I didn't waltz onto the stage and say, great, you know. <laughs> but but it it did. It took a little bit of the edge off, and I was able to kind of just at least get some perspective and allow myself to enjoy the performance a more.
0: Mm. So I feel like that's a pretty huge mental paradigm shift, though. In that it doesn't I'm even. I'm assuming maybe it even teaches or changes how you approach teaching and how you engage with students and that you're not making yourself out to be this expert who's arrived at a destination, but one who's still learning and and on the path to mastery that you know you'll never quite reach, but always continue to to reach towards. It reminds me of a book called Mastery by George Leonard, where I mean, my takeaway from it was that it's not so important whether you, you know, get to the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, it's just important that you be on the right path, on the path Mm -hmm. to mastery. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
2: There's this sort of positive feedback loop, as you mentioned before, because one of the things you find when you're teaching is that if you can get students to sort of channel their own imaginations, there's stuff that happens, given that they've they've got a sort of basic technique, they've spent the time with it and so on. But I think they discover and you can see it happen. Then there's an extra sort of transcendent leap that happens when you get them to just imagine what what mood am I making here? What sounds am I making? What do I feel in the music? And to the extent that that can take over from the technical things, that can transcend the technical. And that is something you bring into performance as well. So as you go on stage, I mean, something that helps me a lot is really spending a lot of time thinking, what actual sound do I want to make when I go on? Which is not very intellectual at all. But it's just, what do I want to f- feel like? And that translates for me into sort of how i put putting my fingers down how my muscles are soft. But it comes from an imagination of how do you want to meet the audience? That's how you meet the audience with your actual sound, your voice. And if you can sort of try to even think about those things even before you go on. And these are the things that we say to our students as well. They're not sort of at variance with each other. So you can sort of learn from imparting that.
1: that. That came home to me recently very powerfully when I just – two weeks ago, I had my first in-person studio class that we haven't had for a a year. Hmm. And for the students playing, it was the first time they'd played for more than one person or two people (laughs) at a time. And at the same time, it was also the first time a bunch of us had listened to music together. And, you know, this was just studio class. So it wasn't like finished performances, but when each person finished, there was this, that moment of, that sort of magical moment at the end when the sound finishes and everyone is just in their listening head and kind of communing with the music. And it was very palpable, that that moment of sort of communal listening, that silence at the end. I, I never noticed it as powerfully, and I never felt in a studio class that it lasted as long as it did. And I don't know if that was my imagination or just that we hadn't experienced it together in so long, but it was a really powerful feeling and something I want to keep remembering as we come back into the world, as it were, that sort of sense of, of the magic that's created when you have everyone listening together. And I think that that's been a struggle this past year, in a way that we've had to kind of imagine that (laughs) rather than experience it.
0: Yeah, because the kind of listening we've done over the last year has been very different. There are a couple other things I wanted to ask related to something I saw in the Julia Journal. Natasha, I mentioned the you know the Q and A's that they do every month or so Mm -hmm. are often fun, and one of the questions that you're asked is, "What do you wish you'd get asked?" And you responded, how can my child study music? And so I'm curious about a couple things. One, just more about that question, but also, Natasha, I know that you've said your parents were involved in music. And Roger, I don't remember what your family history with music was, but...
2: I I'm Amateur musicians, and they me. did anything but you're real music lovers. And-
0: I'm, I'm also curious, not just your own experience parenting musical children, but what your relationship with practicing might've been growing <laughs> up as well. And if there's any similarity you see as parents and whatnot. Yeah. It, Cause it's something that I'm discovering with my own kids and mm. how well, I, I, you,
1: know, you know, know, no, what comes to my mind, first and foremost, in every case is the answer to both how my parents dealt with the whole thing and how we have dealt with our children is choice. So for example, mm. I think that, I mean, what both of our daughters have ended up doing is more towards the vocal side of things. They're, they're both singer, they're both singing and writing songs. Yep. Um, and, but they did practice string instruments. So yes. our daughter who was a cellist, you know, she, for a little while, she was a cellist, you know, and. And it wasn't a good thing, you know, because I would be in the kitchen making dinner and she'd be practicing and I'd shout, you know, something from the other room, you know, that's out of tune or do that again. Or, you know, it was just a disaster. Like that's just not going to work, obviously. So, you know, I think the fact that they were able to carve out their own sort of that they were very musical and they were very uh, loved it, but they needed to carve out their own space in their music and their approach to music. So they kind of both found their way to singing, which was, we were, thrilled by and I think with my parents growing up you know it was always like they knew I loved my cello lessons but they they were like you know okay if you don't practice we're not gonna pay for your cello lessons it wasn't like you have to practice which I wish in some ways they were a little stricter but but it was my choice to do it and I think that was important Mm. too it was my choice to continue I had to show that if I was gonna continue with these lessons I had to do the work so that I think that and I think that's important that I think a lot of students you know while they can get very advanced by their parents pushing them incredibly. Mm. I think once they get to that stage of life when they have to own it themselves, that unless they've made a choice, I think everyone gets to a point in their life at some point when they Mm. have to make that choice whether they're owning it themselves. And I think giving people that choice is a really important thing.
2: Yes, I don't think I ever felt a pressure to practice for my parents. In some ways, they sometimes tell me to do less of it to get up sort of too early in the morning, and I thought they didn't know that I did it, but I think maybe they did. <laughs> so, they were... but it's it's really hard to get it right with the kids. I mean, they're they're both beautiful singers and creative writers, and such. But we but we couldn't really find a way of getting them to play string instruments. I mean, no. they, did, they they did <laughs> do not, quite well. Do we that. had such beautiful you know, relationships with them, but but but. A cloud would descend.
1: Yes, a cloud. You know, one of my
2: daughters, you know, she, she'd <laughs> please, I, you know, you've got to be in the room when I practice. But being in the room when she practiced actually didn't help. <laughs> if you said anything, <laughs> you know, there was just no way to do it.
0: Yeah. Oh. So, can, um, can I ask how long you tried before you came to the realization we, that was a... Two years?
1: It was like a good five to seven years on each in each case. Don't you think? I guess so. Yeah, I think so. Yes. Yeah,
2: and they yeah you know, they got from, they they certainly enjoyed some of it and yeah. learned from it and yeah it was all all good
1: yeah but actually recently I think we listened back to a, a performance mm. that our our younger one did when she was mm. about eleven she's now 19, 18, almost nineteen and I was like wow that was better than I remembered
2: I think she thought so too yeah we all yes. thought it
1: was better than we remembered and I thought wow that's interesting you know that shows you how skewed your perspective is at the time yeah, you know, you're so true. critical you want them to do so well and you just lose sight of, of what they're actually doing yeah. sometimes.
2: There are no rules. I mean, as every parent knows, every kid from in the, in the same time is th- different. different from each other. And, you know, there are no rules. You just have to see what happens. <laughs> but I agree. I mean, you don't want to force them to do it. Of course you don't. But, I mean, on the other hand, I remember some some friends of mine in London actually paying their <laughs> – that's really funny. <laughs> they paid <laughs> their, their kids to practice. And actually, it worked. <laughs> Because <laughs> they went on practicing and they'd go quite good. But we didn't think we should do that.
1: I mean, I think we, we also felt like, I mean, I felt, we felt pretty strongly that they're just let it, like, hmm. letting them give up was not yeah. an idea. You know, that that, that, that well, sense to teach them something, that something you work out over a long period was a really valuable lesson. Yeah,
2: you couldn't easily so, give up. And
1: right. Start. I mean, that they had yeah. to get to a certain point and then they could make the choice to decide to continue or not. So we, I think we did, we definitely helped. Especially since that.
2: they had both asked to do it in the first place. Yeah. I think. Uh, it's funny, yeah. Our older daughter, she's, she had those funny words to the little kids, and she would point to violacase or cello, and she'd say, babies, which was her way of saying music. And she clearly <laughs> wanted to do it until she actually did it. <laughs> <laughs> now they, they both turned out in, as beautiful musicians.
0: Was the singing yeah. something that came out of I Want to Explore Something New, or was it mom and dad are expecting me to stay involved in music somehow. And this is the thing that I'm going to do.
2: Or They couldn't help singing. They were they just were singing, singing all day long yeah. and they love being in choruses. And so, and then, you know, I think we all find out, we as musicians, I mean, there's a certain, you get up and, and somebody enjoys the way you do it. And that also is a nice positive feedback. So you feel like you're giving and people are sort of understanding what you're doing. And that happened with both of them with a the singing too, I think. Would you say? Yeah. So that sort of encourages you you to feel like you've got something to offer and makes you develop it.
0: I wanted to follow up real quick on the the personal practicing because that's something that I'm now kind of newly curious about because it Mm -hmm. seems everyone has such a different relationship with practicing growing up. And it's not necessarily the case that everyone who, you know, quote, succeeds in music as a career had such a positive relationship with practicing growing up. So I don't have a specific question per se. I'm just curious to hear a little bit more about what it was like and and at what point it started to become something, like you said, Natasha, that you, you owned a little more yourself and how that happened and so
2: forth. My own experience of this, and I think I sort of carried this into my teaching somewhat, is that a particular point I was given a piece, which is too hard for me, but I absolutely loved it. It was the Favalier Minor Violin Concerto, and it was really hard for me. But I so much loved it that I spent hours during the summer holiday when I wasn't even having violin lessons just because I liked it so much. And that was my first real sort of primary, you know, I'd practiced a bit before, but that just. So I'm always trying to get students to do things that that they really want to play. Also with chamber groups, I mean, something ideally, if it's something you love and you can sort of, imagine the the way you want it to end up in the end it's such a powerful sort of incentive isn't it so that's a very romantic way of putting it but that was my experience somewhat and then in doing so you have this sort of sense of gnawing on a problem and sort of enjoying the problem solving aspects of it if that's the way your mind goes which is part of what musicians have to do as
1: well. Yeah, I think that's one of the fun parts. I remember, yeah. I remember actually, I always tell this silly story about myself in college, was I think that that was my teacher made me realize that I would end up doing a lot of teaching in my life because I would come to every lesson and I would give him a sort of, like a 10-minute lecture on exactly how my practicing had gone that week and exactly what I did. And one week I came in and he finally looked at me and just said, shut up, Natasha, and just play, you know? <laughs> so that was sort of, I was always kind of struggling with that. But I think, yeah, I think I enjoyed the sort of, tackling a problem part of it I mean loved music I think I just loved music so much that I just wanted to play and I was so excited to play these different Mm. pieces but also the the sort of intellectual exercise of, of solving problems and organizing your own time and I think all those aspects and the psychological aspect all of it fascinated me but I think you know we joke about this now about you know just opening up the case getting the instrument out of the case is a big factor so we have a joke in our household like mm. if one of us is running around doing other things like putting stamps on envelopes and like clearing up the table by the entrance or whatever we'll say are you about to practice you know <laughs> and that's like something that happens you know
2: isn't that true just, just
1: getting it you know, out of the case is closing the door and sitting down and doing that and
2: then you really do get you
1: absorbed. get into it you, you know? get absorbed but, yeah. but it's that pre-opening the case part that's the hardest door to walk through
0: i feel like part of that at least in my memory going back a long time, was that I didn't even really know what exactly to do in the practice room. And so Mm. that undefined nature of, I just know I need to play so that I get better. And there being no guarantee at that point because they had no (laughs) strategies as to whether things would get better or not at all, I think was a real disincentive to practicing. I'm assuming that's changed over the years, but do you remember a time when you started getting a, a glimpse of, oh, this is what problem solving means, or looks like, or how I approach it. Do you remember what that was like? Or like, how, how did you start like when you work with students and they seem to not quite know exactly what to do in the practice room? Like what are some of the things you do to help them figure out how to?
1: I mean, I would say, I think it's really important to understand that there are certain things that might go better that day, you know, that you might work at something and it'll feel better right away. And then other things that will take, long-term chipping away at and i think it, i think a lot of people don't understand that they think that either they're practicing the wrong way if it doesn't get better but what i usually tell them is like if you're practicing you know really analyzing the problem and trying to understand it and working at it consistently over a period of time there are just certain problems that need time and there are other problems that are solved by a good fingering or a masterful think of your first finger at that moment or think of the interval you know i mean there are little things that help and but that practicing is really something that's both short and long-term. And I think if you understand that, you've come a long way.
2: Mm. And I think what a lot of the great teachers and players know is that practicing sort of s- slowly, but with great care and musical mm-hmm. intention and beauty is, is a lovely thing in, in itself to do. Cause you sound good when you play slowly and not divorcing it from the music. And it's where the really the really good work is done. You sort of take away the muscular tension. It's also true in rehearsing with colleagues in chamber music. You sort of play not so slowly that, as I sometimes say, you fall off the bike. I mean, you has got to have a sort of sense of it's still going. You know where you're going. You're not analyzing every note because that doesn't even make sense. You're thinking of phrases and colors. But the thing is that it, there's a technical aspect to phrasing. In other words, if you're not thinking about phrasing, then you're also not moving your bow more when you're growing, or you're not deepening your vibrato as you go to a point where you want to bloom. So if you're not doing those shapes, there's at least half of what you should be doing technically isn't even going to happen. That's how I see it. So people who just say, well, learn the notes and then put the music on afterwards, I think are missing something crucial technically you
1: actually have to unlearn if you do it that
2: way you just sort of end up just being stiff and just doing the same. so and that the the nice thing about that is that it's it's good for you physically because you're sort of varying things all the time but also it's nice i mean you can make the instrument sound good all the time it gives you this sort of confidence
1: and also it teaches you something about flow i find often Uh that you can practice in mistakes and you actually Practice in fear. That's one of the things I noticed Like, mm-hmm. you know, if you always hesitate in a place, right? I mean, or play the top note
2: softly because we're right. not quite sure where you go. Act-
1: and then you keep doing that. You're just yep. actually reinforcing your your fear. Yeah. So that's important to know.
2: So sort of just trying to always be clear about. I mean, you know, you you have to trust that you do. We do all have instincts, as we talked about. If people sing; they tend to sing with phrasing musically. So just listening for that. Am I? Mean, Playing in a way that makes the thing sound musical and natural, even when it's slow.
1: And then not allowing yourself to stop. I think there has yeah. to be a time of your practicing where you are analyzing problems and really dissecting what might yeah. be wrong. And then another side of the practicing where you're working on the flow and the continuity. Yes. And I that's something actually I've been working a lot with my students recently because I actually had this realization that all of them were just stopping all the time. Yeah. when They they never practiced even in a slow tempo, they always actually, especially, especially in slow tempos, they were never pressing fluidly, and so it wasn't helping them.
2: And then it gives you the time to really isolate because you keep on getting the shift wrong. So go back and actually really fix that problem, and then do it in the flow again.
0: You can get the full transcript of this week's chat plus links to various things that came up in conversation at bulletproofmusician.com/blog.